0: Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-travelling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go! Welcome, historians. We are very privileged today to have in person Donald Donnelly, prisoner 1082 in Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. A successful escape attempt, and you don't hear too many of those. Uh, Donald, nearly 63 years later, uh, is still on the run. <laughs> not quite, not quite. Uh, welcome, Donald, to the historians. Thank you very much, Derek. Yeah. Very Hi. pleased to be here. And Hi, Yvonne is here with Hello, me. Hello, Yvonne. Nice to see yeah, you my, as well. Likewise, Donald. The other half of the Hipstorian team. So, uh, yeah, we're both very happy to be here. The weekly weather update is stable, mild, and maybe we'll have a bit of sunshine before the summer's out. But back to back to where we are. I suppose for a lot of the listeners, um, Donald, the... They may not understand a lot of the reasoning behind the border campaign of the IRA, uh, which started in 1957. Why that happened, uh, how then did you become involved with it? And maybe talk a little bit about your family of origin uh, and how that may have influenced your decision, along with the environment that you grew up in uh, socially. Up in in, uh, in Northern Ireland, which as uh, you live in the south now, but uh, you're originally from, from Oma.
1: That's correct. Well, in nineteen on the twelfth of December nineteen fifty-six, the Operation Harvest was launched and it lasted until nineteen sixty-two, until February nineteen sixty-two. And the when you consider the fifty-six, it was just forty years after the nineteen sixteen Easter Rise, and indeed a little over forty years from the more recent uh, Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, in 1968. So we're just midway between the Easter Rising and the Good Friday Agreement. Interesting insofar as that whenever uh, the the IRA campaign started in 1956, uh, a lot of people were amazed and surprised because the IRA had been practically wiped out, both by the Stormont Unionist government, with an internment every 10 years of young nationalist men, and also because in the Republic of Ireland, or as it was then the, the Free State, uh, David Ayer's government of 1936, uh, uh, they, had, they had the new constitution, and they brought in offences against the State Act in 1939, and they, in, they interned Republicans in the Curra, uh, in in Kildare. So, from a two-pronged attack, the IRA was practically wiped out. However, there were three Macs that were still alive. Okay. <laughs> Tom Ross McCurton, uh, Tony McGahan, uh, and they—they—and and of course Paddy McLogan, who, who became the Sinn Féin president. And they, in a minuscule organisation called Sinn Féin, started to re-establish the Republican movement in a, on, a, on a reasonably good basis. Offshoot of that, of course, or depends how you look at it, became the Irish Republican Army, the IRA of that period. And they carried out an amazing raid on Armagh Barracks in 1954. Uh, and I was born in 1939, so I was only a, a young teenager at that stage. But I remember us all being amazed and delighted. We thought, this, the, the, somebody's taken our, our, our side now and fighting against injustice in the six counties. Because whenever I look back and whenever I wrote my book, The Prisoner 1082, I attempted to do this, I attempted to do it a number of things. But one of the things I attempted to do was to explain why I, as a 21-year-old, found myself on top of a, a prison wall with gun towers, or you see marksmen in, 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 in situ. And I wanted to explain the social, the political, the historical and indeed the family influences that brought me to the top of that wall. And in all those categories, there was a, a whole discussion and a debate. But without going into too much detail, on the, just basically on the, on the social and political issues, we had a unionist government for a unionist people. Mm-hmm. And the unionist government was uh, based in the six counties of Northern Ireland, which sometimes is referred to as Ulster, well, as we know, Ulster was nine counties traditionally, but the Ulster became a handy uh, uh, adjective or handy noun for the six counties. They wanted to create a permanent majority. And the only way they could do that, because it was more or less 60% Unionist and 40% Nationalist. Now, sometimes those terms are interwoven with Protestant and Catholic, which is not always correct, but in a general respect, you could, you could accept that. But it certainly wasn't a religious war as such. Uh, and I'll explain that in a little moment, why I say that. But in that artificial, artificially created country or state, they had a permanent majority. But they only could keep the permanent majority if they ensured that the uh, the Catholics, the, the Nationals, didn't outbreed them. That's put in a very in a very crude fashion. Because the Catholic families were inclined to be more, much more, and so what did he do? He made it difficult for nationals to have jobs and people had to emigrate. So it was, uh, to some extent, a kind of a kind of ethnic cleansing before the, ty- the term was ever used. For example, in my house, my father had a good job on the Great Northern Railway. He was a station foreman uh, in Oma Station, which ceases to exist, another aspect of the Unionist government, but we'll carry on just to explain... And um, he and my mother, they had six children. I'm the youngest of them, six boys. And five of us had to emigrate, and I went to jail. Now, I can go around the hill where I lived, Elders Hill, the general term for area. I can name the different houses, the foxes, I can go through all the, the different names. More or less the same story. Not too many of them went to jail, that exception. But most of them had to go emigrate. Mostly to England, Scotland, and some to America, Australia, and Canada, and that ensured that the um, that the Unionist government held on the majority. Now, how did they do this? And I just finish on this point by saying how they did it. They did it by using gerrymandering. Now, gerrymandering is an American term where they created a guy in he was in Philadelphia created a constituency that was like a salamander, because he wanted to include a majority of his supporters and yet a large minority of the other supporters. That meant they would never, that large minority would never have their representative because they be always locked into him. And then they had they, then they had the property vote. People who paid rates only could could vote. So for example in my house my father and mother we they paid a rent, they didn't own their own house, but they paid rates and therefore they had a vote. My brothers who were still living there, who were over 21, had no vote. The Lodger, we had a Lodger, he had no vote. So people next door, great friends, Protestants, Unionists, they owned their house. They also had a shop. They had three votes. So there's just a little minuscule. Now, you've probably heard or have read and Derry, some of them had 13 votes because he had so much property. So then what does that mean? That meant that the local government, the county councils, the urban councils, and they achieved that everywhere except murray because there were too many Fenians there they couldn't do it, so they had to sit with that. But they did it every place else. So consequently, they wanted the, the councils of the authority to give out jobs, council jobs, civil, typical state positions. They had also the allocation of houses. And that's where the Orange Order came in because everything was cleared. That was the clean house for all these things, the Orange Order. The Orange Order was a powerful influence. They talk about the the Catholic Church having a great influence, with the Orange Order on the other side, but it had even more influence, because they also had the pick of who would go to be a candidate as a unionist candidate in the the elections. So through the, the property vote, the gerrymandering, and then the use of that for jobs and houses, we lived in a totally unjust society, and we were being punished not for what we did, but for who we were. So on the social and political thing, that, that, that that's that's the the, the the nub of that. On top of that, you had internment of young Catholic nationalist men. Not until the Thirty Years' War, the recent nineteen uh, sixty to nineteen ninety eight, or however you might frame it. Did they ever imprison a loyalist or unionist? Right. Always. And whenever I was in jail in the high security wing of A wing, been sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, on the other wing, D wing, people whom we never saw or were very seldom saw, were 200 Catholic young men who were interned. Some of them were there for six years. From 56 to 62, they got out. The ones that got out last were there. Most of them did three to four years without any charge, without any trial. And then you had the OUC, an armed force, who were the, as we saw it, they, they were the protectors of the Unionist majority. And you had, the, you had the flags and emblem bills of 1951, which did not allow any demonstration of republicanism or Irishness, nationhood, anywhere. It was penalised by months in criminal law. Jail. You could get two months, three months or six months if you carried the tricolour. All that was part of our lives. That was part of her rights well into the 60s. And it wasn't, of course, until the Civil Rights, which was an amazing organisation, an amazing concept, when they got together without any guns or bombs. And they started to vote using the Labour Party, the, the more advanced people of the Labour Party, like Paul Rose and Chris Mullen and people like that, MPs in in, in Westminster, to uh, create, uh, including Gerry Fitt as well, who was the the, the he wasn't SDLP at the time, but he was a socialist MP in, in West Belfast. And he managed to break the convention, the unwritten convention in Westminster that Stormont, because it had his own parliament, that matters regarding the six counties could not be discussed in Westminster Parliament. And they, with Paul Rose and Chris Mullen, they all created that uh, initiative to break that convention. And once some of the more switched on people in the British administration, realised what was going on in the North. Then you had the McCrory report, you had the doing away with the, the property vote, you had all those things happening. But the genie goes out of the bottle. The 30 years of war, as I call it, had started and it's very hard to put a genie back in the bottle. So my experience as I was growing up as a young boy in the, going to the Christian Brothers School in Oma was that we were being treated unjustly and I thought to myself if I ever get a chance I'm going to fight against this. This is outrageous that people should be ex-, because people were afraid. I didn't have a job, I didn't have property, I had no money so it's like Jamie Hope when the old Fenian times said the men have no property you can you can fight your battle and so the, we, were, we were excited about the Armagh raid and then there was a more another raid uh, the same year in Omah, which was a disaster and out of that there were eight men from the south uh, three from Cork and five from Dublin and one of them was from Leitrim and they were imprisoned for 10 years and 12 years and they, we, we attended the the trials when they held them in Omah, cheering them on and shouting at the police so we were, that type of thing politicised or what do they say now the new term is radicalised yeah. <laughs> Radical. so, so whenever the IRA came along and then And I'll finish now on this point. There was was an imperial general election for Westminster. And in Tyrone and Fermanagh, which was a constituency at that time, South Tyrone and Fermanagh, and Mid Ulster, Sinn Fein candidates, two guys in Crumlin Road Jail from Dublin, one from Fairview and the other from Black Rock, were elected members of parliament in the mother of all parliaments. What did the unionist government do with the aid and support of the British government? Unseated them. Right. Why did they unseat them? Because they were felons. Now they could never have been felons because they were, they were citizens of the Irish Republic at that stage. But they, they, but they got away with that because we didn't recognise the courts and these things weren't challenged. But they were they were unseated. So what did they do? They put, had another election in Mid-Ulster. And the candidate, who was Tom Mitchell from Mary Fairview, was re-elected with a bigger majority. Now, the majorities were this this was ninety over ninety percent turnout on both sides of the yeah. of the side Over ninety percent. Don't get that anymore, yeah. and, and the first the first election he won by two hundred and fifty votes or whatever it was, and the second one he won by over eight hundred votes. So what did they do? They unseated them again. So we said I said, if we can't deal with these things democratically, there has to be some other way. So when Operation Harvest came along and the guys who'd been up Dublin and Cork and various other parts of the Republic of Ireland campaigned for Tom Mitchell because they did a lot of the speeches after mass and all that and some of them were connected with the IRA. Whenever the IRA came then with Operation Harvest and they were recruiting and I joined the IRA in order to put an end to the British rule. What was the recruitment like? How how did that, that approach? Well, I would have been very much involved as a teenager, sixteen and seventeen, in uh, the two elections. And if I say so myself, I had been. I had a lot of contacts, no more because my family were very well known. I was also. This is this is uh, uh, funny in a way. I was also an active member of the Junior Legion of Mary, and, sold, <laughs> okay. and we sold, okay. and this is very important. Yeah, we sold Sunday papers. Mm. So I mean to different areas in the town, and I knew every house. And I won't that bought the Catholic Sunday paper for a startbuck and and those that didn't I knew them too, so that whenever they whenever we came to canvass, I hadn't got a vote obviously yeah. i I was able to bring the Dublin and the southern guys to the houses to say, "Would you come out and make sure you are voting? of course they were they were like a, they were they were a strange species because they were very articulate, they could speak Irish and English, and they were well educated better educated than most of us, and they that's how they got the vote out so it was an accurate thing that I had made contact with all these for this. And then somebody said, we're going training in Monaghan. Would you like to learn how to fire a Lee Enfield rifle or a Webley? I mean, outdated weapons. so ridiculous World, war, war weapons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how to make a bomb. So I became very adept at that. So that's how I was recruited.
0: And how to make a bomb. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the... the, the because it was made with fertiliser, wasn't it, Ash? Well, and, and then changed. No, it's a bit later. No, later. Oh, later. later. Yeah. That's sorry. No, yeah. no, 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 don't say sorry, yeah, yeah.
1: because that's one of the things that, that I have, because I meet it all the time, even with people who buy into what I'm talking about, and then they're, 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 they're sucked away because the 30 years war was so immense and so horrific Yes. Yeah. So, so much about it that this little thing that happened from 56 to 62 is nearly a little squabble almost, but Back then, we used jellignite. And how did we really get the jellignite? We raided the quarries. Of course, stole the yes. jellignite from the quarries. Yes. If you weren't given it to by by yeah. a, a, a sympathizer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that
0: has to be the, the best explained and uh, most succinctly put uh, about gerrymandering, about why uh, the Thirty Years' War came to be, uh, and, of course, why you found yourself um, joining up with the ira i don't think i've ever heard it put a better way oh, so much. uh thank you thank you for for that as far as, it is important because you've been mentioning quite a bit about the the guys from the south mm-hmm. now this was the ira was largely governed from the south up until the split in the mid 80s and then obviously it went, it, 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 it went to Derry. Yeah, yes. um and I suppose, uh, from your point of view, it must have be, it felt quite strange, whereas everyone, they're living in the Free State in the South, uh, which has since become a republic. Uh, what are they doing trying to tell you how to fight mm-hmm. your war? Was there, was there a bit of that? Well, th-
1: that, that would come out... Uh, it is, it's very interesting as you say that, Derek, because even in the prison, it was the, the people from the South. And there weren't that many of them, but they were the OCs and they were the controllers. But again... It's a thing I haven't done an analysis of it, but just on a purely from my own experience, many of us would have been ordinary farm workers, labourers, because of the circumstances of our time. Yeah. Uh, people didn't go to third level. They were starting to go. In my generation they were just starting to go to university, but that had that. So most of us were in that category of having left, having, having left school at fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Whereas we were, uh, whereas the the, guy, the the men coming from the Republic, most of them were well educated either in a trade or uh, a certainly class. third level of some yeah. description. Yeah. And uh, so there was a natural thing, as we as we all do, you, you leave it to the smarter guys. Yeah. <laughs> and there was that, but you could see that the tension growing in yeah. as people started to say, well, this has not been done properly, but we have no say. You could I, I could see the start of that. Yeah sure. in the in the prison. Yeah. Strangely enough, although there's no division as such, you know. Yeah but okay. no, but there was there was a there was a there was a great admiration for the people from the, the South because they I mean they left their comfortable homes, mm-hmm. their good families, they all had good jobs. I mean you look through the list of post office engineers and teachers and yeah. all, and they come up to fight on our behalf. So I mean we were we, we we probably didn't thank them enough, or maybe give them enough recognition for that. Mm. Uh, you know, they were just casualties of the war, and that was it. Yeah. But uh, no, and of course, it it did it, it came to pass, of course, in later years that the northern people grabbed the control again yeah. because they were better experienced and more educated than they had been.
0: Yeah. Past, and one of those people was uh, Doherty O'Connell, wasn't it? So yes, who I fun. knew, and who, yeah. who sat
1: in this room on a number okay. of occasions. Okay. Uh, when he Chief was of organizing. staff of the IRA, the, of the, the he original IRA. He, yes. yeah. well, he, he would have been our training officer. He, oh, stayed, right. he, he lived in Frank McGuire's pub in Lissan Ski. Uh, <laughs> and Frank McGuire became an MP, Westminster MP, in later years. But Frank McGuire was also interned in the in D-Wing, uh, without trial or charge, from 56 to, I think, maybe 60 or 61. Yeah. He spent that time, he had a pub and this he was a very good businessman. And uh, he, Dahi would have, so, whenever we used to go on the training sessions, Dahi was our, was our leader. Now, Dahi was an extraordinary young fella. We took him to be 30 years of age. And he was about 19. You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. And he, everybody was in awe of him. And he was at that stage, he was a tall, stringy young man, but he had this amazing charisma about him. Whatever I don't know any, any other word can describe it. Yeah. But when he came to tell you uh, how to take the enemy, I mean, it was <laughs> we, we said, "My God, if you haven't got a gun, if you haven't got a knife, you can always use a cheese cutter," you know. Oh, I, <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> be laughing, yeah. but yeah. we, uh, but he, he was an amazing. He so he was our training officer. Okay. Uh, and then um, so we, we used to go to Fermanagh and into Monaghan for her training depending on where we would get it and then of course in 1960 the year I escaped Dahi or Dave as we used to call him, arrived back arrived into Crumley Road Jail himself and a alleged one of the eagles of the north as they called him J.B. O'Hagan okay. they had been uh, compromised in some way in Tyrone. and they were were ambushed by the RUC and and others, and uh, he was very badly wounded, and he got eight years in prison and he joined us then in the Common Road Jail. But I left not long after he came in, but he was one man who would have been very well able, one of the very few, to organise an escape. But uh, I, I wasn't in the unit, and that's another story myself. But uh, anyway, but I, but I had high admiration for Dario O'Connell yeah. for his ability and his courage. And he died very young. He did, yeah, yeah 52 yeah. or something like that, that's wasn't right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. How were you interned? What happened, like, with Tip? Well, I, I wasn't interned. I was sentenced by so you were the, sentenced, Lord Chief Justice it's... McDermott, yeah. uh, who, was, uh, who was known among his colleagues as the Baron. He had been the Minister for Security during the Second World War for Northern Ireland. So that will tell you his preeminence in the Unionist Party. He was also had been an MP for representing Queen's University. And then he finds himself on the bench dispensing justice. (laughs) So-called. Lord Lord Chief Justice. And um, there were eight of us, uh, there was nine of us, but there were eight of us that were sentenced. And we were charged with causing... There were a number of B-special drill halls. Uh, and the B-specials were the the armoured wing of the Unionist Party. I mean, you'd meet, you could be the, you could have a roadblock out on that road. And my next door neighbour could be Derek. And Derek would be in the B-special, have his uniform and have his rifle. And he stopped my car or my bicycle. As would have been He'd it? what's your name? For God's sake, Derek, you know who I am. What's your name? And of course, he's off. commanders and officers are watching them as well. And all these guns are pointed at you. I mean, this was, this was the way it was. And so the B Specials were they were anathema to the Catholic population. And so consequently, what we did was uh, we destroyed their forming up point, which was their B Special drill holes. And uh, we blew a number of them up. And uh, we, weren't, we, weren't, we weren't very good at covering our tracks. Yvonne, and consequently, there were eight of us charged uh, conspiracy to cause explosions. Uh, the, but conspiracy is a very difficult thing to prove. It's found even today. You have to have people be able to prove that people are of the same mind. Yeah. And um, so, consequently, they dropped that charge, but not before they got us all sentenced. So, they dropped that charge after I'd been sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, and I was sentenced. Seeing that you asked the question, I answered it directly. I was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for being a member of the Irish Republican Army to wit an illegal organization. Okay. Never before nor since has anybody ever been sentenced to 10 <laughs> years. But because I refused to recognize the court, he had all the other evidence implicating uh, evidence, alleged evidence, or whatever you like to call it, some of some of it correct. He had all that to read from. And my name was mentioned in various places. So he identified me as the ringleader. And he said, you have um, 17 years of age. He said, you're you're a person of some education because I was still at school. And he said, you were a ringleader of this group. And he said, and people like you, we will have to think up how we're going to deal with people like you into the future. We can bring back the whip, the, the cat and nine tails, and also bring back execution for your crimes like such as yours. I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, as if, is he talking to me? Nice. <laughs> but but that was Lord Chief Justice. So I sentenced to ten years for that. Others got next sentence was eight years. A chap from Berra who also refused to recognise the court and the others then they were all farming people and they were lost to their families. Mm. So they had they got sisters in to represent them, which was, I anyway, against the rules of the IRA, but I mean looking back on it, it was a sensible thing. Yeah. Now if I had been recognised in the court, I would have looked for a separate trial, because that's what you do, you get away from. Right. I often see that in the papers, somebody wants a separate trial because they don't want the evidence that they have against you being used against me. Yeah. So they have to have evidence solely to do with me. But anyway, that didn't happen because I didn't recognise the court and uh, the jury took a bit Five minutes to find me guilty,
0: and because yeah. you didn't recognise the court, do you think that went against you? And he gave you in even oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, well,
1: that'd be standard practice. And, and
0: did you have anyone helping you? Like, you, I know you said you, you you didn't bring in a solicitor, but no. like,
1: no, no. nobody knew. No. So mother, you were you my, were seventeen yeah, years yeah, old. And my mother and father didn't even know I was been up in open trial because I, I hadn't I, I hadn't been I hadn't told them, uh, but they oh, knew see. I was in jail. I was seeing what they did then was they detained you they could see all these powers they could detain you for months Mm. and then it was only because of uh, vacant space they could decide to either charge you if there's enough evidence intern you if they thought you were a threat or release you if they thought you weren't a threat so you were detained so I was detained for weeks but then I got this charge and my mother and father heard it on the radio so they literally threw the book at you. What? Ten, ten years. It's yes, only ten yards.
0: years. Ten yeah. years is a big sentence. Because you knew, like, you know, you, you knew you were getting some jail time. That's oh, probably yeah, 100% yes, before yes, you yeah. even yeah. went in yeah. there. But yeah, yeah. the blood must have drained from you at the ten years. I mean, I've, I've being that age, that was a, a, you're a lifetime.
1: You're absolutely right. When I went down the steps back into the, when I was brought back into the, the holding cells, But we had a guy from the Sandu who was a, in a very unionist area in Belfast, and he didn't like us and he showed it but no he wasn't it didn't do anything uh, it, it wasn't rough for anything but he just his whole manner I and mean, you me know, it was all he just he couldn't stand being in the same company as and when i when like him doing I always remember this little ginger mustache and he said to me what did you get and I said 10 years and he said oh Jesus even he was shocked yeah. So they'll just give you some example of, of what I'm talking about, but no, I mean the blood. I mean, I thought to myself, oh my God, but yeah, my whole teenage years are gone. School pals, never see them again, and well, and of course, ten years at seventeen seems like a hundred years. A hundred years, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I had to get over that because you're sort of you're brought back to the prison again, and you're brought to because you come from detention, you're from from on remand, you're then stuck into the. A wing, which was the high security wing, and uh, then from that, then you get a you get a job because the Roma raiders had been in the jail, and there's really very few of them. They didn't have. They didn't have any campaign to get political status, so they accepted criminal status. insofar as they wore the uniform and did the work, now I don't blame them for that. But we inherited that compromise. I mean, if I'd been there myself, maybe I probably. That age, course, seventeen, you feel like mm-hmm. tell them go to hell. But uh, so then I was assigned to a tailor shop, and then you wore a grey uniform and a red star on the sleeve. On the uniform, you got your you got your uh, tunic, coat, a shirt. Uh, all the stuff was very rough clothing. Like I'm going back now to the fifties, you know, and uh, you you look at that, and then you're into your cell and the, the period in the, in the prison then of course was you you went to the work and you dined in the dining hall and you had some recreation you're locked up then at, at uh, seven o'clock at night and on a sunday you're locked up for 20 hours uh, you, know, you only have uh, four hours out on a sunday two hours in the morning two hours in the afternoon and were you live visitors uh, once, a, once a month my mother and my brother used to come my father came once but he, he he'd been visiting my family that, you, that Derek mentioned earlier, uh, because my family, my father's family, were steeped in republicanism. Okay. His uncle, Mick, was a famous man in Tyrone in his time called Red McGallagher. He would have been my grand uncle And he was in the IRA Army Council back in the 20s. And he had been sentenced to prison for, uh, he did prison over in, in, um, in, in Scotland. He, he, they put them, they, see, they, those days they put them everywhere in the United Kingdom and he was from, he was from outside home or more and then he was involved in a very um, stupid kind of a situation a case called the Crown Entry that's what they called the case in 1936 and he had the, the leadership of the northern IRA all meeting to court-martial some fella who would give permission to some other guy to recognise the court and they, had to go, but they were to but there was an informer and they were all arrested. There was a copy of on, on Shield, which is the seed, which apparently I never saw it or heard of it until I read the case, which was an IRA document for information communication. And because of that, we all got chambers from prison. He got six years, and he did six years in Crumlin Road jail in the same wing as I went into twenty years later. Okay. And then my uncle Frank, my father's brother, he was in Derry Prison. My uncle Paddy, and I've got medals that I'll show you there, they're all up in the cabinet there from the War of Independence. My uncle Michael was a courier for John Devoy from America. Uh, and he died in nineteen twenty-three in a, a tragic accident in, in Philadelphia. And uh, he was an amazing guy. That was my father's older brother. There we were a big family of them as well. My father was second, and my uncle Mickey, as we call him. We never met him, obviously. And um so the so the yeah, and then my granny, my my father's mother, she was as she was as great a Republican as as Porik Pierce. And indeed, the 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 story goes that you see you weren't allowed to fly the tricolour even for a Gaelic match. And there's some big match in Oma, and she carried the tricolour down the centre of the town. The police were there's too many of them to to take the tricolour from. So that's my family connection just to cover to with that aspect. So yeah. when your mom would
0: visit you, uh like that once a month. Yes. Yes like she she must have been sad that you were in in there yes, but, but know, she she, but was, she must have been incredibly proud of you as well
1: she well she was she was um, she was she was kind of in the same mould as my granny and even though they weren't related as her mother in-law she was of the same mould. i mean I remember on one occasion police coming to inquire suspicious of something that had happened out in the countryside one evening and my name was mentioned, and they came to my house to ask me where I was, and the two detectives. And a sergeant of the police, and they came in and they came and let them into the house, and uh, and they they weren't too happy with my answer, but they could they could do nothing about it except go. But there used to be a weather vane uh, on the doors and front doors, a piece of wood that had a hinge to keep the, the water yeah. down. Yeah, and I don't know what they, what they called it. There was some name for it. My mother and my mother to go, don't come back here again. And she banged the door on their heels so much so that she broke the, the piece of wood on their heels. <laughs> so that was her attitude to them, you know. Yeah. So she was, pretty, she was pretty tough. I mean, having said that, people are human. And you do, the other side of it is coming to see her younger son, whom they should probably have had great dreams of uh, for, for the future. But that's the way life was. And she came and she did it. Very seldom did she miss a visit. My brother Jim, who just died last year, he worked in Pittman's in, in Belfast. Sir Isaac Pittman had a printing place in Belfast. And in the 1950s, and this is a very interesting little fact that, that Derek and yourself might look into, he created the printing press in Belfast in the 1950s, 55, 55, 50, around that time. And he said that he wanted new recruits and he wanted them to come equally from both sides of the community. My brother Jim was on the dole, as we called it, or the brew, as we called it, normal up in the north. Of the, the the brew mean the bureau, the bureau, the unemployment bureau. They call it the, brew, the brew. So he was he was and this unionist Protestant lady said to him, Jim, there's a thing going at Belfast. You might be interested. In. Told him the to story by Easie Pitman and he got his job there. Uh, anyway, that's the side. But Jim used to come to meet my mother at the station. That time we had a railway station in Oma. And uh, my my mother would come up by rail. He would meet her at the station and the two of them would come to visit me in the prison. O- occasionally, he, he may had to go back to work or somebody. She'd come in herself. And then, o- occasions, it was, it, people were afraid to look for a visitor. Because, you see, you see, it's okay it's okay for you, Yvonne, to, to say, I go and see him. But Derek has a job where his His boss is looking for any excuse to lay him off, you know. And so people had to, I mean, even some of my pals said to my mother, Do you think it would be safe? And I said to tell them not to come because once they've gone to it, it would be a black mark against them. So she would come sometimes with ants and somebody come from America or something, they would get another visit. But there was quite a rigmarole trying to get it, you had to get permission to do it. And then the book that I wrote. There's a photograph of a visit permit for my mother and father, so that's, that's the way it was. But she would come every most months to see me, you know.
0: And would you have that sense at the, at the time in Northern Ireland, just talking about uh, Pittman there, that you know the, the subtle differences between, say, a constitutional unionist and the loyalist as such? So, yes. that, well, you, so yes, I, uh, I know you exactly would've... what you're talking about, yeah, Derek. Okay. And
1: it's, a, it's a very good question. It's a thing that should be highlighted. Absolutely, yes. And and I give you an example. Mentioned earlier by next door neighbours, the Protestant people, we lived on the terrace of five houses: the Donaldies, the Kenlocks, the Arnolds, the McCluskeys, and the Divines. Divines and Donaldies were Catholic. Okay. These were Methodist Church of Church of Ireland. Um, They were the Kenlocks lived next door to us. And they had no children. And of course, there were six of us in our house. Well, of course, they were leaving as They got older. But whenever there'd be a boxing match on, like Joe Louis versus Joe Baxley or whoever, they had a big radio. And that was, in, Bob was a butcher. And of course, we'd all get into his sitting room, which was, I mean, a little palace so far as we were concerned. Uh, sitting in the room, listening to it, and there'd be oranges and chocolate and stuff. And whenever I was in prison, she came with my mother me. Uh-huh. which I thought was a, an extraordinary, courageous thing to do, so that, that was the difference that you had people who they knew there was something wrong but they could do nothing about it, they were part and parcel of the system, uh-huh. and there were, many pe- there were many people like that, and that's why people like Ivan Cooper who in the later time after i left the North, he became involved with the SDLP and he was a Protestant from uh-huh. a Unionist family, uh-huh. and he became one of the greatest uh, civil rights people that you could that you think of you know but yeah we would be very conscious of the difference it wasn't yeah. everybody yeah. and even when I was doing the campaign and I used to call into the unions <laughs> there was an auctioneer who was there he passed away <laughs> since I used to call into his office and we'd be a lot of banter you know I'd be in the 17 and these fellas to would be there and somebody would say those fellas kill you but no they but, they, but, they, but they, there was a mentality of, that, that you had they had uh, that they had control yeah and so, but they were quite happy and satisfied that they, were, they didn't need to be doing anything. It's only whenever they became threatened right that the, that the, the the knives came out literally because they felt that threat were going to lose a position. Mm-hmm. And I remember my old friend Padre O'Donnell, who wrote "The gates flew open, a famous jail uh, journal and uh, back from the 1920s and he said "There, there is no precedent in history." Of anybody giving up power without a fight. Yeah. And it even applies to to the pastoral councils and to the GEA committees. You no, know, if you've got power, people don't give up oh, I, I know I, I just make the point to, to, to make just make the example to make the point. So they were threatened with losing power because they could all the jobs, they could all the houses. There's no need once you subscribe to the to the things. So that was it. But yes, we made a distinction and they were very decent people. As I say, one well, of them even came to see me. Yeah that's, yeah, that's incredible.
0: That's and, incredible. And we were talking with Ann Cadwaller, but her um a couple of weeks ago about this next next question, because uh, when we were just we're beginning conversation there, you were mm. referring to the the period between sixty eight up to ninety eight yes. as the Thirty Years' War. Yes, yeah. And it's not the Troubles. And I yeah, we had yeah. the same uh, question with Ann, and we'd all in that yeah. agreement it was a war. Well, yes, yes,
1: yes. Yeah. I, mean, I, I use the term troubles as well, but yeah. I mean, I, I, if I'm talking to people, I usually the in thirty years war because that's what, I wasn't involved in it, but I, as far as I was concerned, that's what it was, you know, yeah. Yeah. and the dirty war as well. Yeah, yeah okay. as we're as we're seeing now, regularly in the, the kind of the documentaries that have been done on it, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then, so when when you're inside, um, I suppose it's it's every soldier's duty is to try and escape, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's that's where it comes from. That's right, exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. How did you look? Like, at what At what point did you make a decision? How far into your your stay uh, did, you, did you decide to yeah. one? Well, there's a li-
1: an interesting little there's an interesting little digression here, which is it's important in its own way, but it's importance could be exaggerated as well, but. I had been as a very active Sinn Feiner. Had been secretary of the Sinn Fein common in Oma, Alice Milligan common, even at seventeen because I was a school and you, know, you were given the job as secretary because you can divide you know, <laughs> <laughs> And there was also of, of the of the, even of the the larger common for the area. Uh, I was the secretary, and uh, we were given posters to put up in February of nineteen fifty-seven. Uh, asking Protestants to support United Ireland and telling Catholics don't emigrate. I mean, you couldn't think of a, of a poster of, of more harmless. But And I got a couple of guys to come with me on it who weren't Sinn Féiners. And as a result of that, I got my first taste of imprisonment. I, I was jailed. I was jailed. I was detained. I wasn't charged. Uh, we were detained. And there were The the guys who were with me, really all they were, they were school pals. And all they were doing was helping me to put the leaflets around. And when we were arrested, they were arrested. And their fathers and mothers obviously thought this was the end of the world for them. So we came to the courthouse. My father and mother had come up to the court. They knew that it was on in Belfast. And um, I was in and sitting, of course, we were being Guarded by the OUC and all that. I mean, you think we were uh, enemy, public enemy number one, and the local MP for the area stood up and spoke. And you, I don't know if you've been to a court cases, but sometimes courts are so uh, they're almost informal unless you're involved and participating and know what's happening. And the thing was over before I you knew what it happened because I had my little speech ready at all. all. Right. And he represented us all. And he said they were misled by somebody else and you and give us the probation act and we all got to go home, to my to my amazement and delight. Went back, back into the IRA, which I went home. Okay. Well, in a very short space of time. And then we arrested then some months later then for these B special drill holes being destroyed. And um, the when I arrived in the prison the OC of the prison the Dublin man who had been elected MP twice and who I'd been a very important cog in, the camp, in his campaign he said to me, he was the OC of the prison was every, every officer commanding and he said to me I'd like to see you tonight after tea. So after our tea I sat down at the table with him and I thought he was going to tell me all about the structure of the prison and you know the, the unit, because they have a unit to use that term, even though we were not like Bobby Sands or then, we were in their uniform and we were doing the work and he said to me um, because you recognise the court, for the posters uh, there's some opposition to you being a member of the unit and I said to him but you know, that has to do with Sinn Féin, I said that's, that's a separate issue well, I said, well, that's unfortunate. And he spoke to me in a very courteous and polite, almost a priestly way. Me? Right. And he said, um, so I made an assumption, which we all do, and even when you're younger, you do the even more. I made an assumption that there had been a vote or something. Yeah, okay. We're not letting we're not this guy in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, to but sir, If I'd recognised the court, I would have got two years, maybe four years at most. I didn't recognise the court. Well, he said, well, That's the position, and I wasn't allowed into the IRA unit. So I went to be sent that night, rejected and dejected. Bad yeah. enough, having got 10 years in prison, but now I wasn't part of the crew group. Yeah, and you sort of say, how did, how did this come about? How are we going to deal with this? So that comes back to answer your question from that moment on, I was going to escape, was okay. Okay. <laughs> I was going to do two things. Okay. I was going to bring in my books because I, I didn't study that much when I was school. I was going to bring my school books and I was going to start studying and I was going to escape okay. the first opportunity. So I never appealed that. I didn't ask any more questions. In later years, I discovered that there was no discussion among them at all. He had either two or three people at most decided it or they got an instruction from outside which okay. is not beyond the bounds of possibility. I asked one of them who later became my brother-in-law. I asked him, and he, he didn't. He I couldn't get I couldn't get the, the real answer from him. But uh, but in the event, I never know how it came from. But because I didn't ask about it, and nobody else asked me, how could I? And people new knew entrance into the high security wing were told that I wasn't in the unit, and they would have been presumed that that was my choice. But it wasn't my choice. Now, out of that came a very good thing. Because if I was in the unit, I would have had to ask permission to escape. Now, I'm not in the unit, I can do what I like. So, I was observing in November of 57, 58, 59 and 60, when I was in jail. In Belfast, there was a thing called the smog. And I don't know how many days it happened, but it happened more days than you would like because I <laughs> get bronchitis was. And I suffered from, from, nearly everybody had bronchitis from the smog. And it was from the factories at that time, were still. And yeah, like, the coal
0: fires yeah, and all yes, that. Yes. Though, yeah. oh, that was, you
1: couldn't see, you could hardly see your finger. Yeah. And in fact, some mornings you're, you're out for an hour to walk around the yard. And some days they wouldn't let us out at all. Yeah. But all the days they would let us out, and you sort of say, well. It's 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 worse than they think it is. And you say, could I get to that wall? Now here was the here was the conundrum. The window there—that's the outer wall. Here is fifty feet back, maybe a bit more. There was a gun tower here on D wing that could see up to here. There was a gun tower on A wing that could see to this. So, you couldn't get near the wall. If, say, if you had a grapple a hook or mm-hmm. something, so you couldn't, because you'd be shot before you'd be, you'd be you wouldn't get it done the first go, not the second go, maybe, and maybe the tenth go, <laughs> but but you'd be, you're certainly leaving yourself open. Yeah. So, we tried, I tried all kinds of ways to think, how could you do it? And it wasn't as simple as I thought. And the years were passing. I was 18 then I was 19, and then I was 20. And when I was 20, every year they were doing things to improve the security in the prison. They raised the level of the outer wall, and here in D-Wing, there was a small wall, with a gate that let the, the, the police through to go, in, to go up into the tower, and a little kind of our, uh, is wood for us, and there and. Over that wall was the square, the the piazza in front of the prison inside the walls, the front gates and all that. But they were armed warders there. Yeah. Uh, and um, so they raised the level of that wall to really take protect the wing, A Wing from and they put it at the same level as the outer wall, the new outer wall. I said, looking out my window, as I was on the criminal oath side of the wing. Two things. I cannot see the D-Wing gun post. Right. He cannot see me at that wall. The A-Wing gun post cannot see me because there was the laundry building, so it was obscured. And the administrative building was there, and i show you a photograph of it now. Um, and whenever they... the, the room, the, the bar, all everything was bars windows, as you'd expect, in the jail... And they were horizontal and vertical, a vertical ladder. So if I could climb, if I could get out of the out of the prison cell in that air, I could climb up the ladder. Very common. <laughs> climb up the, the window onto this link wall. Now at the link wall, I cannot be seen by either gun tower. But as I go out of the link wall, I will be seen. Less than midway, away, but still. So if I could get a rope. I could make a rope that would tie onto the bars, anchor it. Now I'm talking as I thought at the time. Yeah. Put the rope, the, the rope would have to be 70 foot in length because it'd have to go 40 feet that direction because I'd paced it as well as I really guessed the pace now. And then we'd have to drop almost 30 feet, 20 to 25 feet on the other side. So I had to make a rope of 75 feet. But you'd anchor it, and what you do is, you run along the wall, down the wall, sh- speed down, you're gone. Nice. Easy. <laughs> Easy peasy. So the more I looked at it, the more it became feasible. So but I needed help. What happens when I get out? Where can I go? I didn't know Belfast.
0: And, and it's a pretty Protestant area, and even this area. It, and of
1: course a... in those years it was as tight as a drum mm. because they had the gun towers. And the peace who walked, who did a run armed walk, well, the prison officers in the square that I'm looking down at as I'm on the top of the wall, they're armed. I can recognise them. They would, normally wouldn't normally be armed inside in the prison, but inside in the inside in the wing, but they're armed here at night And they're so uh, I looked around and I said, I need a Belfast guy, really, with me, or somebody who knows Belfast. And there was one fella whose table I was sitting at, at that time because as people left, sometimes these tables then moved together, and I came to, the, to sit at his table, and his name was John Kelly. Now, he became very famous afterwards. He was one of the two Kellys that was involved in the arms trial with Charlie Howe. Uh, yeah. There was Captain James Kelly, and there was John Kelly, the Belfast Republican. But a lot of people who had a kind of, I would just say, cursory thing, they thought there was only one Kelly. Right. I thought there were two. And John was, the, the, in fact, he was the main man, even more so than Captain James, bringing in the arms from the the uh, Provisional IRA because he one of the founders of the Provisional IRA and uh, he um, he uh, was a member of the unit and he was also a member of the escape committee that an official escape committee so in uh, chatting to John I said to him when are you ever going to escape? you know <laughs> and he said to me Said, what? He said they keep sending out floor plans, uh prison ward schedules. I mean, they've got they gathered quite a bit of information. It's amazing how you can gather information. And they gathered all this information and they sent them out to the GHQ general headquarters in Dublin. And Dublin said no, it was too risky. People who could be shot were killed. Uh, if we if we send guys up there. To help you, you need help on the outside, and we're not going to put anybody at risk. Send so them up there for that purpose. So, the answer is no. So, then they had other plans, and they had other plans. Okay. So, when I established very clearly with John that there was not going to be an escape by the official escape committee, I said to him, I have an idea. Would you be interested? And he was a kind of a guy, as he turned it afterwards. I mean he, he was a charismatic kind of a guy because he was he was in the choir for the for the, the choir for the mass you know see, and he was a good footballer and uh, he, they, were, they were very very uh, forward people but there weren't too many Belfast people in England because during the fifty six campaign nothing happened in Belfast there wasn't even a a, a, a rocket lit in Belfast because the man who was in charge, was arrested months before December the 12th and they thought there was an informer and they were right, but some people say they know who that was, but I I don't know who it was, and the informer, so they decided not not to do anything in Belfast. So there's a handful of Belfast guys there, but John, so I said to John, I said, would you be interested? And I said, I would. So the two of us got on talking about it, and we made a few, once we became genuinely interested and I knew that he was on board, then we developed a few, because I'd been thinking about it for quite a bit, yeah. and uh, my idea was to escape on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, you'll understand Yvonne, you've got the crowds of the world going shopping. Yeah. People in the prison, have they're all they're all under personal pressure for their mm-hmm. own families, yeah. So, great idea. It also was, in my, going back to my naivety, it was also the uh, commemoration of 1592 when Red Hugh O'Donnell escaped from Dublin Castle. <laughs> so, we do, the, do the, we do, the, we hit, kill two birds with one stone. Now, as it so happened, we hadn't got the plans ready for Christmas Eve, so we went out on St. Stephen's Day or Boxing Day, as so they called it up there. But so we started then to plan with John, and then we did a lot of planning. And one of the things we did was we give code names to things. For example, his job was to get in the hacksaw blades, and I so I was to hide them when they came. But I had never said to him. In fact, we, we were reading at the time all about the Kim Philby and all those people. Mm. I mean, we were kind of uh, at our wit's end with the things that the the that the Spooks could do. and so I would say to him. Did you, did you remember Dad tell you Are there any berries on the holly, on the holly this year? No berries, no hex of it. But when the berries are on the holly hear yeah, The berries are on the holly. That's the type of I mean, you, you had to do this because when you'd be talking, you wouldn't know mm-hmm. where well, you'd be heard or who would hear you. And of course, we weren't letting anybody else into the secret. We yeah. were it ourselves. And uh, he was quite happy to do this because the other guys wouldn't wouldn't do it, you know. And unfortunately he was recaptured, which was a great pity because he did a lot of the work. I mean, the um, the, the vital work, preparation work, it, it, it couldn't have been done like, without him, you know. So that's kind of getting me the best. So from yeah. the word go, I was planning my escape, but it wasn't as easy. No, not But the part of the jigsaw was supplied by the establishment. They okay. raised the wall and did the connecting wall. An incredible so, you
0: spotted that, yeah. yeah so, it was considered Europe's Alcatraz. Yes, yes. Um, you know, again, obviously, they thought of it that way as well, yeah, with, yeah, with the yes, right, yeah, raising well, of, right, the, of, right, of, of right. the wall. So how did you, for our listeners, how did you, you know, with the help of a hacksaw blade, where was your point of exit?
1: Yeah, well, the point of exit was John Kelly's cell. And the reason for that was the cells, there were, there were about 350, as a round figure, cells in the prison. That, that means that there are four wings. A wing, they kind of the, like the half of a wheel, of the spokes go out. A, B, C and D. So A wing and D wing and then you have the administrative block in the centre. And then you have the outer wall here. which was her. So the big first issue was how do you get out into the yard? And the only way we could get into the yard was through the, the window by hacksawing because you, you couldn't see numbers in prisons and even today numbers are infected. If they're two on, two off, this this is a Someone is going to going to the hospital, going to the doctor, one off, one on, I'm going He's now one on, I'm one off. And they keep at this all the time. So numbers are important. So trying to get out any other way would have been practically impossible because of that very simple system that they had. So we decided that we'd cut the heck, we'd cut the the, the bars with, with the hacksaw. Now the job is to get the hacksaw blades in and the hacksaw blades when they come in they have to be secreted somewhere. which is difficult in a prison to find someplace to hide something because we were subject to searches every month, maybe twice a month. In fact I was searched so often coming up to the escape that I complained to a fisherman like I've been searched too often of course, that only meant it was, often, it was a Stupid thing to do, but but there were there were, there were and there was certainly a strip search it was, it was, and all your stuff is taken out of your little locker, the bed turned over your mattress. And all that. So anyway, to come back to the point, they were asking. So we just we divided our jobs between us. So my job was to hide the things. John's job was to get them, to get the to get the hacksaw updates. So he managed to get a message out. Uh, I wasn't privy to that. How he did because we decided we wouldn't talk about those aspects, that we leave them as secrets as it could be. In fact, I've ever wrote a book about there were something like 16 escapes over the years. I don't know if you've seen that book, yeah. Or not. yeah. I wrote the the, the, uh, the forward to it, uh-huh. you know? and uh, he said to me, he said, How did you get the hacksaw blades in? And I said to him, Brendan, I said, He's the author of the book, I said, Brendan. If I was to tell you that, I'd have to shoot you. you see? <laughs> so Brendan published his book and I did the war, and he sent me down the book. Hill. And in the book he says that John Kelly used to get a his mother and father were at stall in the vegetable market and they used to bring in a bag of veg into John for lettuce and stuff on a Saturday. And that and I, I remember the bag coming. I remember we used to see the bag, but it wouldn't be that much the bag we be shared with his table. And so he'd make chairs around it. for days. But there'd be maybe scallions in it or something. But you used to put salad cream in. <laughs> you put your hand into it. Like <laughs> you. So, um, so he said, so Brendan wrote this book, that that's how John Kelly got them in. And I, I rang Brendan. I said, Brendan, who told you that? He said, Donald. If I told you that, I'd have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so John got them in, and then I had to hide them. And So what I did was, I had a little locker with my books, because I could study them. And I got set of tape. I set a tape, and I stuck them up in the bottom of the <laughs> yeah. the table. So, the the yeah. And then, you wouldn't believe it, two days later, I'm called out for a search. They come the come the... At random, people push in. and they lock you up, put you into your cell, close the door, and then they close and then they do whatever order they might take out two or three at a time. And, and of course, I'm locked myself, and I decided I better you have to take your boots off. And so I'll take my boots off, now. and I get down and look at And here's the bloody extra place <sighs> the, 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 the thing. That, 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 Self and melted, yeah. Oh, it wasn't very hanging recent. down anyway. Yeah, all I could do was stick them up again, them <laughs> up again. As sure as God, your man can use it right out of a film, you know. And what does he do? He needed to find the thing. I mean, if they'd been there, if they'd been dying as, as I saw them, I was gone. Yeah. And uh, he searched the search and that was it. So then, after that, then I, I had to find a different place to hide them. But the hexo so blades were too small, John couldn't get them. Couldn't get them to. You yeah, right. asked them to the keep Sorry for. That. I skipped that that answer. Did we decide we'd exit as a John cell? As John was in the second tier, I was in the top tier. Okay. I was, as I say, in the penthouse suite, but, anyway. <laughs> but we were able. to... I was a cell directly above him, so I was able. We were able to get notes. I could send down a thread uh, yeah, and get notes. Right. So we kept in touch with things. So. Then. How to cut the blades? How to cut the bars? without I'd been heard. So both of us looked independently because he was in a different wing to me for permission to clean ourselves. And of course, they loved it when you wanted to clean yourself. yourselves kept clean, that way. But anyway, so I took out my table and I scrub nice. I scrubbed that table. And he backs all those bars
0: <laughs> in unison, making music, yeah. And
1: we had a prison war. You see, most of the prison warders. Yet, remember, Yvonne. I have to say this every so often, even to remind myself. It was just fifteen years after the war, because it was just t- it was that that's 13 years oh. after the war. Most of the prison warders had been British soldiers, mm. and we had one guy who was a British soldier. He had been a Japanese prisoner of war. Oh. And he had some injuries to his face that were claimed to was got a butt of a rifle. Mr McCullough was his name. But Mr McCullough was standing at his tears in the shirt. And I thought to myself, he's a prison warder now. And he'd been in prison himself, even different state of prison. But I have to keep an eye on him. So I went over to talk to him. Which, you know, which, a lot of you guys wouldn't talk to the prison warders, but I did. And I started to chat to him. And he said afterwards that before I came, somebody told me this afterwards, that McCullough said before I came across him, he sensed that something going on, and he didn't know what it was. He had a sixth sense, right. and I knew he was agitated, a, a slightly agitated, and that was was wrong. But I I was kind of kind of distracted him to some extent, and he wouldn't believe it. Two years after I escaped, I was up in Pandora on holidays and who did I meet? Only himself and his wife and another for wife. <laughs> and and we stopped to say hello. And he said, well, What are you doing here? I said the same as yourself, Mr. <laughs> Michael, on holidays. And I'd say and he, took, he stopped and the others went on ahead, they were staying in the Imperial Hotel where he was oh, in Pandora, yes. which at that time was raw the, the land of gentry stage, you know. Yeah. With the gas meeting over oh, God, house, yeah. yeah. you wouldn't <laughs> But we cut the bars, so the scrubbing of the table was important. Yeah. But then another guy came across, a man called um, Mr. Rowan. And Mr. Rowan, he stood and he was in the Irish cars and his cap, you know, the the cap was down here. So you only could just see the eyes. And he never moved, he stood there, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> And the other prison warders called him the Cenotaph. <laughs> he missed nothing. He moved amazingly. He moved and he done Stop scrubbing that table. You've done enough scrubbing, you know. We're like I on his nerves, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So we had. To, so we did that kind of thing, fitful start, but eventually we got. We got as far as cutting the bars, but there was a frame. You see, you had the bars outside, and then you had a frame with it, glass and two little holes that was for and a little lift for air. Yeah. I mean, and that was made of some kind of Aluminium or okay, so, but so when we were selling the, the bars, it was. Right. But when you're selling which like, yeah. <laughs> more difficult? Yeah. You know, yeah. and they uh, they got they they, they did the um, they did a complete utter inquiry into it, There's an amazing prison inquiry into it, and and a cousin of mine got got it. I couldn't get it. She got it. I think she said, said, "We can't give that out until all the people are dead." I think she told them I was dead. (laughs) But anyway, she got her hands on it. I have it in my book, and uh, they 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 redid everything. They cut bars and others to see how long it took us. They they made the rope that I had was made of electric flex and blankets and sheets. They did that as well to see how long it took us so it made amazing the detail of it then, and this was before ISO 9002 or whatever yeah, came right, back you know they did all that yeah. and uh, but he did he said that you couldn't hear the bars being cut outside the cell okay he was right right but if you're inside in the cell and like, I was, I, was upstairs, nice. I could hear John yeah. uh, you know send him down a note like, yeah. by the floor, stop you know. yeah. so we eventually that, that was well, that's how we did it but then we were to go out on Christmas Eve
0: well, Yvonne, this looks like a first for the Hipstorians. This is going to turn into a two-parter. Donal, your story is fascinating and riveting. And that is certainly down to your storytelling abilities. We're going to have to leave this on a cliffhanger and wait until next week to see how you made your escape and what happened thereafter, dear listeners. And we shall hang on to our seats until next Thursday for part two. And we look forward to seeing you all then. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here Thank you.